0: it took me about a year to really take it in that the air that my daughter was breathing was what was killing her and what what was really sad is she wanted to be a pilot and yeah I don't know if she was here for today how she would feel about that if you said to her now you know Ella do you realise the air that you love so much is what is killing you I'm not sure how she would take that actually
1: We often can't see or feel air pollution, and yet it is taking a toll. It's increasing the risk of disease and raising global temperatures, and in some cases, it can be deadly. In this episode, we hear stories about how people around the world are calling attention to this invisible killer. This is Political Climate, a bipartisan podcast on energy and environmental issues in America, presented by the USC Schwarzenegger Institute and the Leonardo DiCaprio Foundation. I'm Julia Piper, Contributing Editor at Green Tech Media and a Senior Fellow at the Atlantic Council. Now, you may be asking, why do a show on air pollution at a time like this? Yes, I'm aware as I record that America is gearing up for day two of the first Democratic presidential debate, and yes, we will address it. My Democrat and Republican co-hosts Brandon Hurlbut and Shane Skelton will soon be back to spar over the latest developments in climate and energy politics. Don't worry. We're doing this show on pollution because it's a big deal and because it's very political. Air pollution is a human-caused issue that is responsible for the early deaths of some 7 million people every year, around 600,000 of whom are children. That means somebody around the world dies prematurely roughly every five seconds due to poor air quality. Air pollution is also directly linked to climate change. While carbon dioxide is the primary contributor to global warming, short-lived air pollutants such as black carbon and methane are also driving up global temperatures. And as we discussed with Governor Schwarzenegger in our Terminating Pollution episode, presenting climate issues through a pollution lens tends to resonate more with voters. So in this show, we hear stories from people on the front lines of the fight against an invisible enemy. I speak to a mother campaigning to have pollution named on her daughter's death certificate. I talk to the author of Choate, a book about science, politics, and personal experiences linked to pollution. I hear from an entrepreneur who's on a mission to map out city pollution the way that Google maps out traffic. And I learn about how a group of women in Southern California are trying to protect people in their town from the real-world health impacts of online shopping. Several of these interviews were recorded last month at the Austrian World Summit in Vienna, where the USC Schwarzenegger Institute held a Talanoa-style discussion on pollution. Talanoa is a traditional word used in Fiji and across the Pacific to reflect a process of inclusive and transparent dialogue. The purpose of Talanoa is to share stories and build empathy and to make wise decisions for the collective good. And so in that spirit, here is a series of stories on making the invisible visible when it comes to pollution. Rosamund Adu Kissi Debra is a mother in London, England, who has been shedding light on the threats of air pollution through the life and tragic death of her daughter, Ella. Ella died of a severe asthma attack. It was the day after her family's South London neighborhood saw pollution levels spike to some of their highest levels ever. That prompted Rosamond to launch a multi-year campaign to find out if worsening air pollution had contributed to her daughter's death, and if so, hold the government accountable for not taking action sooner. In May, a UK court ordered a second inquest into Ella's death after new evidence came to light regarding the air pollution levels close to her home. The 9-year-old girl may now become the first person to have air pollution listed as the cause of death in the United Kingdom, which could have major legal implications. I started my conversation with Rosamond by asking her to tell Ella's story in her own words.
0: Ella was my eldest daughter. She was born in 2004 and she died in February 2013. She became ill in October 2010. So we've calculated she was actually ill for about 30 months. Um, And she had one of the worst cases Of asthma ever in the UK she actually wasn't born with asthma and this is very very important to say this that she wasn't born with asthma but obviously up until October 2010 we assumed she was fine and she had cold like symptoms like flu runny nose a bit of a cough and tragically that was the beginning of the end
1: Tell me a bit about what happened to her. You said that she didn't have asthma growing up and then you noticed she had this cough, right? She,
0: yeah, she did. She had a specific cough and it sounded like what I now call a smoker's cough and she would cough and cough and cough to to the point that she would cut off her oxygen supply so all her lips would go blue and she would start breathing and she would have to be resuscitated so I actually had to learn how to do CPR because if she did that at, at home, you would resuscitate her and then call an ambulance but she would do it anywhere even in hospital when she was admitted sometimes she would stay overnight or during the night she would cough or in in the morning there was no pattern we just didn't understand it what we were desperately trying to find out was her triggers that were making her cough and sadly we never got to them during her lifetime
1: so how did you figure out that pollution was one of the triggers for this, this terrible cough? Um, At the first inquest,
0: it said that her triggers, they felt it was airborne. So she was allergic. She had hay fever and was allergic to the pollution. So I actually was trying to say to the consultant, it it must be that. And she was like, no, 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 absolutely no way. It, It must be that. And when I came in contact with her lawyer, brilliant woman, she's called Jocelyn Coburn. She's a human rights lawyer um, in the UK. And what Jocelyn did is she drew a map, a timeline, of all Ella's hospital admissions. And where we live, we have a monitoring station and she plotted all the spikes in air pollution against Ella's hospital admissions. And majority of them when she was admitted was when there was a spike in air pollution. I mean, I just wasn't expecting it. I thought she might have maybe an asthma gene or something. Um, Hmm. That's what I thought because her asthma was that bad. But yeah, it took me about a year to really take it in that the air that my daughter was breathing was what was killing her. And what, what was really sad is she wanted to be a pilot Mm -hmm. and, Yeah, I don't know if she was here for today, how she would feel about that. So, you know, going up in a plane, um, we took her to an Air Force field. She was really excited to be on there. They let her take the controls. We used to go and see aeroplane shows and things like that. I actually don't know how she would react if you said to her now, you know, Ella, do you realize the air that you love so much is what is killing you? I'm not sure how she would take that, actually.
1: Wow, that's a difficult thing to think about. And of course, airplanes cause a lot of pollution. What is fascinating here, too, is that, you know, you found this out about your daughter's life and her death, and then you made it your mission to let the world know and to let the UK government uh, get involved and and have them know that pollution was really the killer here. Tell us about what you took on there, what, what you tried to achieve.
0: I did, I thought for any mother actually to not know why your child has died is bad enough that your child has died and not to know is even worse. And she has siblings and as they got older, they would want to know, you know, why did our sister die? And I had nothing to say to them, which wasn't good enough. So I was prepared to look, but I was also prepared to maybe not find out, but luckily we did. But the more I looked, not just about her, the more I found out it was linked to all these deaths to do with uh, heart disease, strokes, miscarriages. And what was shocking to me also is although Ella's asthma was very, very bad, I do admit that. But there were so many other children in urban cities that also had asthma. So in the United Kingdom, an average class, there's about 30 students in a class and up to four children can have an asthma pump. And yeah, so this is not a. So there's a whole generation of children growing up who are on asthma pumps. So in London, we have a population of young children of 2.5 million, and at least 240,000 of them have an asthma a diagnosis. And that is not including the the children who don't have a diagnosis. So asthma last year was up by 25% in the UK. So, And it's not curable. And also what I learned is some of the damage being done to children's lungs is irreparable. And what that means is they will have the damage for the rest of their lives. So for some of them, sadly, they will remain on medication. And How can that be acceptable? I mean, no parent is going to think this is an acceptable situation. And I realize people didn't truly understand the impact of air pollution on health. And there's a lot of raising awareness that has to be done. And as I used to teach, it's just another form of education in a different way. So that's why I do what I do.
1: And you fought to have pollution put on Ella's death certificate, correct? And you were recently handed a victory in the courts on this matter. Can you explain that? Yes.
0: So one of the things is at the original inquest, air pollution was not discussed at all. So when we got this information, we wanted to include that on her death certificate but it's a long process, so we had to con- we had to convince the attorney general, who gave us permission to apply to the high court, and it was heard by three judges including the most senior coroner in the UK. And on May the 2nd, they came back to say the medical evidence linking air pollution um, to her death. They are satisfied that we have enough medical evidence. So they've quashed the original inquest, though th- that is no longer there. And we are now waiting to find out what's the next stage. And Ella will have... A new inquest and it is also been a lot of support from journalists general people it has been in the news non-stop since 2016. As a mother you do want justice for your child and we believe it's not going to bring her back but what I'm hoping is if we manage to get it on her death certificate then this might change legislation so future children not just in London, not just in the UK, pardon me, because we know air pollution now is a worldwide crisis, is a public health crisis worldwide. So we hope through changing the law in the UK, all over the world, governments will do something. Governments have a duty to their citizens to make sure they are healthy. They have an actual duty. It is a duty of care they have. And governments everywhere should be ashamed They should clean up the air. How can you live in in a country with children dying? It's Mm. not acceptable. I mean, how is that acceptable? There's reason that you could could stop. Yes, that is never. And, you know, people need to understand that. Before my daughter died, I was an educator. And we are there to educate children, protect children, love children. How can you be responsible for children dying? It is never going to be acceptable from where I stand.
1: Rosamund, thank you so much for telling your story. Thank you very
0: much for having me. Much appreciated.
1: Beth Gardner literally wrote the book on the dangers of pollution, and she did it through characters and storytelling, rather than just facts and stats. Choked, Life and Breath in the Age of Air Pollution takes readers on a journey around the world, including to Washington, D.C., for the backstory on a landmark and bipartisan environmental law. I started my interview with Beth by asking why she decided to write a book about pollution in the first place.
2: I really came to it in a personal way, I guess, myself. Um, I, I'm an American, but I've lived in London for 18 years. And it turns out that the UK and really all of Europe has a very significant air quality problem, quite a bit worse, I was surprised to learn, than, than America's air quality. But when I first got to London, I, it was something I was always aware of in in the sense that when I walk out would walk out on the street, I would smell these fumes um, and feel this kind of thickness to the air. But in 2000 and 2001, that was really not something that anyone ever seemed to talk about. So I kind of just pushed it to the back of my mind and I figured it was nothing. And many years later, I started to do a little bit of reading on it and I realized that that it's actually a, a huge problem and that, that the UK and all of Europe is really in the midst of this kind of invisible public health crisis. And once I came to understand that, Uh, It struck me as a journalist that this is a big story and it's big news that we're not giving its adequate due. If anything else was killing, you know, 7 million people around the world, 100,000 Americans every year, 9,000 Londoners, you know, we'd be only talking about that. And that's pollution specifically, correct? Yeah, the health effects of air pollution um, is very strongly linked to, you know, increased rates of death and increased rates of all kinds of illnesses from heart attacks to dementia and premature birth and on and on. So I think that
1: birth story and the story yeah. of mothers and what can happen to their children mm-hmm. it was very eye-opening and visceral and as a lot of friends of mine are starting to start families it was like wow where we live could truly determine the fate of your child from before the moment they're even born
2: yeah very much so and I don't think that that's something that most of us realize and it's something that really affects us in a profound way but we don't see it you know the the scientists can sort of come up with the statistics and and the you know research indicates all these links and everything but we don't feel it in our in our lives and i think that when we start to understand that we we see how powerful this is and and that it's really something we need to be focused on so that was what i tried to do In the book and and what i quickly realized when i started to learn about london's air pollution is that this is not a problem for any one city or one country it's global Mm -hmm. and so i traveled around the world and you know tried to draw some of the connections and some of the differences between places like india china california i went to washington to sort of track the politics of it and other places too I guess if you were to say
1: one anecdote or pull out one anecdote from your travels, what would it be?
2: Yeah, well, I mean, in some ways I think what what feels to me like the heart of the book is a chapter that I've written about the American Clean Air Act and and its power. And even though this is an American law, it's really had repercussions all over the world because we Americans have been a real success story in this area and an example to other countries. And and I, I built that chapter around a friendship around the story of a bipartisan friendship that started in the late 1960s between two young aides working for an obscure subcommittee in the US Senate. And this was a subcommittee that drafted what really, to me, I think is one of America's, modern America's most consequential laws, the Clean Air Act of 1970. I think it's a little bit undersung, but the Clean Air Act literally has saved millions of American lives and trillions of dollars since it was passed. The thing that's so striking from today's vantage point, this law passed the Senate unanimously. It got one no vote in the House of Representatives. I don't think either you or I could think of the most innocuous piece of legislation that would get that kind of support today, let alone a law that gave really far-reaching new powers to the federal government.
1: I love one story uh, also in the book. It's of this entrepreneur, I guess a business person in India, and he basically yeah. insulates himself from the the pollution outside by making his building clean, I guess. Yeah. And can you just quickly tell that
2: story as well? Yeah. So this is a, a guy named Kamal Mieto who who realized over a number of years that he was suffering really serious health problems that were being caused by Delhi's terrible, terrible air. It's among the worst on earth. And his doctors told him to leave Delhi, and he didn't want to. So he basically built himself a bubble. It's a business center, and corporations can sort of rent office space there. But it's sort of his own personal passion project. And you know, he's got all sorts of filtration technologies, and the building is filled with plants that are supposed to oxidize the air and all of that. But you know, he realizes, as much as anyone, that this is a Band-Aid and that you can't really fix air pollution by just hiding from it. And there's really no escape. I mean, you still have to go outside. But it was fascinating to see. And it also really speaks to, I think, the ways that this issue of air pollution intersects with economic inequality. Mm-hmm. Because someone like Kamal Miado a businessman who's got plenty of money to, you know, sort of create his own environment, can sort of achieve a certain level of escape from air pollution. But of course, most people can't do that. And, you know, I think that this issue really tracks the some of the biggest fractures that run through our modern societies, whether it's racial injustice, or economic inequality, And others.
1: And certainly it's hard to do anything about those issues if no one's telling that story and sharing it with others and making it a priority for the policymakers to then go do something about. So I think your book does a good job of of shining a light on these issues and hopefully inspire some people to take action.
2: Great. Well, thank you so much.
1: Thank you. Before we go on, a quick reminder that Political Climate is headed back to Sun Valley, Idaho for a live podcast recording at the Sun Valley Forum, an annual conference on the transition to sustainable, equitable, and secure communities. We were there last year, and we cannot wait to go back. The event takes place July 23rd to the 25th, and you can save $75 off of your tickets by entering the promo code S V I 75 when you register at sunvalleyforum.com. That's friends of SVI 75V as in Valley at sunvalleyforum.com. We hope to see you there. Roman Lacombe is the founder and CEO of Plume Labs, which makes a nifty little device called Flow. Plume Labs wants to make complex issues like climate change and pollution more tangible by putting data directly into people's hands. I caught up with Roman after last month's Talanoa dialogue in Vienna. Here's what he had to say.
3: Uh, what we've been working on for the past several years is how can we make pollution visible? So literally the theme of the, the discussion we just had, because pollution matters so much, but also because it, it changes all the time. So if we concern about how it impacts our health, in order to take action, what we need to understand is how what we breathe changes from one street to the next, one city to the next, one room to the next when we're indoors. And so the ultimate power right, to understand what we're exposed to is to be able to measure in real time as we go, wherever we, we are, the pollution in the air around us. And so we built a device called Flow, which is a personal air quality monitor that you can strap on a backpack where with you continuously it's going to monitor the air around you and uh, use your connect to your, your smartphone and use its GPS to show you a map and a graph of where and when you've been exposed to air pollution. So we're trying to take this incredibly complex issue of the pollutants that impact your health, turn it into a very simple digital experience that can tell you at any time is this good or bad for you and what could you do? to decrease your exposure and to improve the air you breathe.
1: And so I think cities do measure pollution, if I'm not mistaken. What is different about what you're offering?
3: Yeah, so so we're lucky enough in the Western world specifically, unfortunately not all over the world, but in uh, 60, 65 countries around the world, to have some amount of public infrastructure to regulate pollution. And the way we've approached this, and this has largely been a movement that started in the 70s, 80s, thanks to uh, American and Californian leadership specifically, in order to regulate pollution, you need to have evidence that's admissible in court that leads to using not the state of the art, but rather uh, very uh, long term and, and sort of legacy technologies that have been uh, the same for decades. And so that means the way we measure pollution today, at least governments measure pollution today, is incredibly costly. Think of the mainframe of computers that take entire rooms are, uh, you know, hundreds if not thousands of times more costly than the personal computers we use, this is the equivalent that we're using for environmental monitoring. That means that in a city like... Vienna here, or you know Paris, London, or even San Francisco, Los, Los Angeles, Angeles, New York. Based, yes. There's there's maybe a dozen to at most. I think London has a hundred monitors, which is an anomaly. It's an outlier. Mm. It's one of the cities that has the most research, partly because this is where we discovered early on the ill effects of pollution, because uh, the UK was leading. Uh, you know, Britain was leading the industrial revolution. Literally, mm-hmm. the reason we measure the mass of particulate matter today instead of the count is because Historically, we regulated pollution by measuring the amount of soot that will fall from the ground from the skies of polluted uh, industrial cities in the 19th and then early 20th century. So these devices that governments have are incredibly accurate, but they're incredibly limited in geographical scope because you end up having maybe 10, 20 at most data points on one city. And because pollution changes so much from one street to the next, because on a given city block, researchers and scientists estimate that there's a 5 to 8x variation between the least and most polluted area, uh, you will literally have a very different air quality level just a few dozen meters away. So if you want to understand this, the only way to do it, instead of having sensors everywhere, which is not even possible, uh, we can't, you know, government's not going to measure air quality inside your house or in your car. What we've uh, set out to do is build the equivalent for air quality to what Waze did for traffic using personal uh, use cases to crowdsource data and understand better in their case traffic what we're doing here is mapping air pollution so we build this personal device first and foremost as a way to understand our exposure but also as a way to crowdsource to map the hotspots and the Uh, the sort of heat maps of how pollution changes. And you showed a map in
1: this discussion. You could actually see kind of like a traffic jam where the congested and really ultimately polluted areas of a city are, where the green spaces are, and that's all by, I guess, individual data being tracked via your device. And so what does that then get you? Because ideally there would be some follow-up or some action that would come from measuring. Uh,
3: Absolutely. And so what's interesting is the reason this product is so interesting to so many people is the... The foundation, I guess, of the use case is really being able to make this issue visible, being able to understand what we are exposed to. Uh, If your children are coughing on their way to school every morning, you want to know why, where and when there is so much exposure. So you need to be able to measure, and that's use case number one. But the goal, of course, is to go from being able, number one, to measure to, number two, taking action for myself identifying the places, the times, the contexts in which I'm breathing poor air, um, ventilating when I'm cooking, avoiding the most uh, polluted streets in my neighborhood when I go out for a walk or for a stroll. And all these individual behavior changes can add up to decreasing urine exposure over time. Now, that's what I can do myself, that we can, can do control. ourselves yeah. as, as individuals. But there's this much broader question of the pollution problem, the uh, collective crisis, and the public health challenge that it has uh, become. And at this point, what's very interesting to me is the convergence of issues between climate change, between environmental policy, between clean air. Because at the end of the day, what we're talking about is applying pressure for change on the most important sources of emissions. That's what we need to solve. And here we talked about stories here. There is a very personal story for one of our um, early users, um, a woman in the south of France in a city called Toulon that happens to be. a small size, like hundred thousand people, uh, but happens to be one of the busiest harbors on the entire Mediterranean arc because of cruise ships, because of ferry ships going to Corsica, and she lived downwind, less than half a mile away from the harbor. Turns out when um, uh, boats are at berth and uh, docked at the harbor, most of them keep their engines idling just to keep the light on, which makes no sense. Right, right. It should be electrified. But no one ever took the step to say, we'll invest, we'll make it happen. She realized that the reason her daughter was getting bronchitis after bronchitis over time was because when she got advice, device, she realized pollution was high all the time. Literally because she was downwind from these idling ships. So she got enraged. She uh, organized with a group of uh, others in her city. They managed to get a national media TV crew to come and cover the issue and use the device as a way to show
1: and tell that visually story, by yeah. the
3: pollution level and, and tell the story of why it, why it mattered. And of course, when in the mayor of a, of, of a small town and national media shines a light on this, it props you to action and yeah, just a few respond. days later <laughs> they decided to electrify the entire harbor and that will you know take time there's investments there's construction but eventually the issue will be fixed and that's thanks to one person with one device with one crew of dedicated journalists that told this story and made change happen this is the sort of progress and and and, and you know steps towards clean air that hopefully our work and our technology can help catalyze and help bring forward
1: and so the device is called what again?
3: The device is called Flow, and the company is Plume Labs. Uh, we're available all across North America and uh, in Europe uh, on PlumeLabs.com, Amazon. And it's a personal device that you can use uh, really to understand pollution and how it impacts your life right here, right now, uh, and what are the steps you can take to uh, breathe clean air.
1: Fantastic. Thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me, Roman. <laughs> well, thank
3: you very much for having us.
1: The week I was attending the Austrian World Summit, Grist reporter Justine Kalma published a story about the stifling air pollution back home in Los Angeles. Her piece is specifically about the impact of online shopping in San Bernardino County, home to one of the country's biggest hubs for warehousing and distribution of goods. So think trucks, trains, and machines, all the things you'd need if you were in the logistics industry. The tough part is that moving goods around is good business. So residents see a need to balance public health with economic development. But that balance has gotten all out of whack if you ask the group of women protesting to protect local environments. I recently spoke with Justine about her grist piece by phone. Justine, in your latest piece, you tell the story of San Bernardino County's smog crisis. And while it's a local pollution issue in Southern California, it's being caused, it seems, in part by the buying habits of people all across the country. So tell us what you learned about the booming so-called Amazon economy and how that's making people in San Bernardino sick.
4: Yeah, so everything that we buy online or in stores, it comes with a hidden cost. Um, I grew up in San Bernardino County. Um, it's got the worst smog in the entire country, and it's also a huge hub for the goods movement industry. What that means is that much of the stuff that we buy that's been imported into the U.S. comes into the nearby ports of Los Angeles and Long Beach and then gets sent inland uh, to warehouses and distribution centers before it's sent to uh, the rest of us all across the U.S. So if you own anything that was maybe made in China or that you bought on Amazon, there's a good chance that it came in through here. um Amazon is the biggest employer in the region, but it's an area um it, it's it's an area that's struggled economically for a long time, and at the same time it's it's working class Latinx communities who are living closest to warehouses and transportation hubs who are paying the price of that economic growth with their health. There are elevated rates of cancer, infant mortality low birth weight here, and that's one of the reasons why mothers have been leading a decades-long fight to clean up their air.
1: So can you tell us the story of maybe one person you spoke to that you thought was particularly uh, telling of this issue?
4: I spoke with a young mom named Anna Sanchez. Well, she's 27 now, but uh, she grew up in San Bernardino, close to several warehouses and a super fun site that's been converted into an airport and logistics facilities for companies like FedEx and UPS. Uh, she has a nine-year-old son who was born with gastroschisis. So uh, that happens when a child is born with its intestines outside of its body. And she was, she was part of a study at uh, a local university that found a geographic clustering of babies born with the same defect near major transportation hubs in the region. Luckily, her son is healthy now, but his struggle and her being able to connect that to the environmental risks in her community uh, inspired her to do what she's doing now. She's a student at Pepperdine, and she's been helping local environmental groups sort of push back against the development of these warehouses right up next to uh, neighborhoods.
1: It is interesting how so much of America doesn't really see the impact of, of their purchasing habits and then uh, the impact of their Amazon addiction. Uh, And then, of course, it's hard to even get people to see the pollution even in those local areas. Did you find that people there were really understanding the issue? They really felt pollution in a more obvious way? Because in some ways, it's easy to overlook. You can't always see, touch, and feel it. So how did you find that was resonating?
4: I think having grown up in this region as well, you sort of everyone is, is is tied to the industry in some way, you know, whether folks have family who work at the warehouses or in the rail yards, or just even seeing um, diesel trucks come through. Uh, this is an area that has enough warehouses to fill up more than 50,000 football fields. Um, and there are thousands of trucks coming in through the region. When I was in high school, we used to actually hang out in um, my, my friend's dad's trucks that they drove. So it's just kind of shows how um entwined this industry is with the community and when you're living that close to it, I mean, you can you can see and smell it. It's mm-hmm. it's it's palpable and you know, the rest of us in other places that's not what we're seeing, but um you know, it's coming from somewhere.
1: Is there a tension between addressing pollution and addressing poverty levels in a community like San Bernardino? How do you do both?
4: That's a great question. Um, You know, what a lot of these mothers and environmental activists are saying is that they can have good jobs, a greener economy and a healthier environment all at the same time. They've been pushing for things like an indirect source rule to be developed for Southern California, which would hold warehouses and rail yards accountable for the emissions that they're not necessarily generating themselves the way a refinery or or a factory would, but that they're attracting because of this steady stream of um, diesel trucks and, and planes. And I would also say that mothers and activists like Anna, they're definitely pushing for things like community benefits agreements with developers um, so that they're consulting with communities that might be the most impacted by the construction of a new warehouse or logistics center. Um, You know, they want things like uh, assurances that there will be local hire, um, that those are safe and stable jobs and that the companies will green their operations. And so I think that um, there's definitely um, a lot of momentum, not necessarily to, to divorce the community from this industry because that, you know, in honesty can't happen. But just looking at um, how communities can be at the table when big decisions are made about the local economy that they're going to be a part of.
1: My final question is, how do you see this community making this issue more visible to the broader American society?
4: I think that they've already been impactful in um, creating systemic changes. It's been a kind of Game of Whack-a-Mole, taking on one warehouse at a time, but they have definitely been pushing for air quality regulations that would that would capture the issue more broadly, like an indirect source rule that would hold um, that would hold warehouses and rail yards accountable um, for emissions that uh, it attracts from from the trucks that go um, back and forth. And I think another interesting um, piece of this is that it's becoming increasingly important to tackle climate change and pollution hand in hand. And as we're seeing a more vibrant national conversation on climate change, you can't forget that carbon is usually accompanied by co-pollutants um, that lead to the creation of smog. And uh, warmer temperatures actually speed up um, the the chemical reactions that that create smog. So it's going to be an issue that's you know, potentially going to be made worse by climate change, but we can actually tackle both issues at the same time.
1: Justine, thanks so much for telling this story.
4: Thank you so much. I really appreciate it.
1: And that is where we'll leave it this episode. Thank you to all of our guests and to our producer, Victoria Simon. As a reminder, you can find Political Climate pretty much anywhere you get podcasts, including Apple, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play and elsewhere. We're also on Twitter at poly underscore climate. You can visit politicalclimatepodcast.com for more information. And with that, until soon.